told you guys before that uh, God put me through children's ministry to change me. And I walked into this room the other day when the kids were singing. I actually got tears in my eyes hearing these little, little children up to, you know, fifth grade, watching them on stage in their motions, how excited they were to sing about, you know, this power that raised Jesus from the dead is, is living in us and how Jesus is going to get them through uh, all these uh, circumstances in their life and how they're trusting him in so many areas. And I know they're, just, they're, they're kids and they haven't experienced a lot of things you've experienced, but man, um, it is a joy to watch kids grow up knowing that there's a God who's going to help them at every corner of their lives. And so I want to encourage you to keep supporting our kids. Thank you for all the donations. Thank you for the volunteers. And I pray that some of you um, step out of the woodwork and get involved with those kids. There's nothing more exciting watching um, God's truths get embedded in the hearts of these young children. Well, next Sunday is Father's Day, and we're going to do something we've never done before. We are going to have an event called Dad Fest. And we're going to have food trucks out here. Who likes food trucks? Okay. Yes, food trucks, great food. They're getting better and better all the time. And uh, games for kids and parents and old cars. Anybody here like old cars? There's a bunch of restored cars that are going to be here. That's going to start at 11 o'clock next week. So after you leave this service, you can go out there. Stuff will be gathering out in the parking lot, and you can get ready to, you know, get lunch for dad. You want to hang around here. If you want to go home and come back, it'll go on until 2 o'clock. It's a great opportunity to invite your husband, your dad, your neighbor, your uncle, someone who might not normally go to church. This is going to be a day that's really great for dads. Also want to let you know that this Wednesday night is our um, monthly prayer night. So this week, we'll be gathering here at 6.30 right in this room for a little over an hour, maybe about 80, 85 minutes of prayer and lifting our voices and our prayers to God. And then also let you know on Wednesday, Life Network is opening up their latest um, pregnancy center right here in um, Widefield. And I visited there the other day, a bunch of us as pastors prayed over the building. They're having an open house. There's information in your bulletin um, when you can come to see it. But uh, that's going to be a great asset to our community to help young people who are dealing with pregnancy issues, sexual issues, and they are here to serve this community. It's one of the missions that we support as a church. So keep them in prayer. Well, if you're new today, we just started a new series last week called Just Jesus. And you know, when I was a kid, I would see pictures or paintings of Jesus, obviously not a picture of Jesus, but a portrait, someone's painted or drawn of Jesus up on the walls of the church and got this idea that Jesus um, looked a lot like me, you know, kind of blondish brown hair, blue eyes, uh, looks like a model, his hair's combed. I mean, you know, real handsome looking guy. And wondered, is that what he really looked like? I mean, that was in my mind. That's what Jesus looked like. And then I get a little older, and these movies come out with Jesus, and he's a little more rugged, dark hair, uh, messier, tattered clothes sometimes, a little rougher in how he interacts with people. Go, okay, maybe that's a little more what Jesus looks like. And I actually love the uh, image of Jesus in the series The Chosen because he just looks so human. He looks like us, and he has a sense of humor. He smiles. He knows when to be serious, when to lighten up. And, you know, these are all like images that we have of Jesus because, you know, you look in the Bible, and there's not a whole lot to really tell you what Jesus looked like. And we've got those, like, 33 years of his life, just a brief window. And actually, even in the New Testament, the Gospels, most of it focuses on just three years of Jesus' life, the last three years. So we have this little sliver of time of Jesus' life to get a picture of him. But I want to tell you that the picture of Jesus is much bigger than those three years. It's much bigger than those 33 years. It even goes back beyond Bethlehem to, to time way back. In, in fact, before the beginning and way, way into the future. That I want to expand our view of Jesus from this little thing, that this guy that walked in the Middle East 
you know, for 33 years, this little image we have of Jesus and say, wow, Jesus is so much broader and bigger, and that's why we worship him. That's why we serve him. That's why he's so vital to us. And last week, in case you weren't here, I'm just going to summarize. We looked at a passage where Jesus was walking around this, along this road to Emmaus and met some disciples, and he later encountered his disciples in the upper room. And with both those groups, it says he opened their eyes to see what the scriptures had said in these Old Testament books. They were called the Tanakh, the, the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, those three major categories of the Old Testament. Jesus was telling them, hey, guys, this whole book you have been reading, that you've been reading in church services, in synagogue, in the temple, that's all about me. I'm the main character. And we looked at how Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament through pictures and through uh, rituals and through offices like prophet, priest, and king and through prophecies and through Christophanies, which are actually manifestations of God in human form, almost like a human or an angelic figure where Jesus seems to make a cameo appearance in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus was, was present. So he didn't start his life in Bethlehem in the manger. It existed way beyond. In fact, Jesus is uncreated. He's eternal and he's forever. And that's why we surrender our lives to him. And so we're doing what the book of Hebrews says to fix our eyes on Jesus. If there's one thing about church that, that you and I need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus. And so this summer we want to do that. Just Week after week, looking at who is this Jesus? Who is he to us? What, how is he revealed to us? And I think your, your mind is really going to be blown when you see all the things it says about Jesus. And today we're looking at something that I think is real critical. It's one of the classic passages about Jesus in the New Testament. It's in a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. And we're going to look at six verses from the first chapter of that letter. So we're going to start with verse 15. I'm going to actually do this in couplets, two verses uh, at a time, and look at who Jesus is according to this passage. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus made it all. Jesus made it all. You know, it says right here that he is the image of the invisible God. The J.B. Phillips, Phillips paraphrase says, now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. God is spirit. So what does God look like? Well, we just have these manifestations in the Old Testament. He's like the wind or he's like the cloud. He's like the pillar of fire. But that doesn't give us an accurate picture of who God is. The accurate picture came through Jesus. This word image is the Greek word icon from which we get our word icon. It's an image. It's an accurate representation and God told his people in the Old Testament, don't you make any graven images. Don't you try to make something that looks like me or that represents me because anything you do is going to be disrespectful to me. I'm not a rock. I'm not a statue. I'm not a river. I'm not a tree. I'm not anything like that. So don't even attempt it. Other nations did that with their gods. But God says, don't do that. You can't make an image that fairly represents God. But God makes his own image in the reproduction of his own son, See, it says in, in John 14, when Jesus um, says to his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. This is what he's like. We're the same. We, we act the same. We think the same. We have the same goals. We're the, we're the same. We're two different persons, but we're totally aligned. God isn't this angry, vengeful, hostile person, and I'm the loving, gracious one. We're the, actually, we're the same. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there's another Meaning to this word icon, it means a manifestation. Jesus is a manifestation of God. He doesn't just represent God. 
He actually is God. In fact, later in the book of Colossians, Paul says, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Meaning Jesus, even though he's in a human body, he is fully God. And the reason he's doing this is to challenge those that lived in, in his day that said, no, Jesus, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a man. I mean, he was created man. He had a time when he was born and lived and he died and he's just a human. He's not a God. And Paul says, no, he's much more than that. He says he's the firstborn of creation, another title he gives to Jesus. And, and cults like Jehovah Witnesses will often take this verse and say, see, Jesus was born, born in Bethlehem, the only begotten Son of God. That's when he started his life right then. And this word can mean born first. If, if you're anybody here, firstborn child, you know, some of you, yeah, you, you were born first and you got extra responsibility and you end up taking care of your little brother or sister. I mean, that's the firstborn. That's one meaning of the word, but there's also another biblical meaning of the word, and it means rightful heir. And it, and it usually is the son that's born first, but not always. And we see this in several cases in the Bible where Isaac was the firstborn of Abraham, but Isaac was not his first son. You know who was his first son? Ishmael. Solomon was called David's firstborn. You know, David has a son named Amnon that was born before Solomon and a son that he lost after his pregnancy with Bathsheba. So these were called the firstborn, but they weren't literally the one born first. We find in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. And a little bit later in this passage, the firstborn of the dead. He wasn't the first person that ever rose from the dead. A lot of stories of people in the Bible that rose from the dead. So what does it mean? He's the rightful heir. In, in the book of Psalm, chapter 89, verse 27, it says of the Messiah, this is God speaking, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, meaning you are the one that rightfully inherits this whole place. And the reason we have to agree that this is much more than the one that's just born first is because of what Paul then goes on to say about Jesus. His life didn't begin in the manger in Bethlehem or in the pregnancy that carried Mary to that point. His, his existence goes way back prior to this. He's called the creator of all things. He says, by him were all things created. By him, by Jesus. When I grew up, I used to think that was the Father's job. I mean, God the Father is the creator. Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the Savior. So God made everything, and the Je Jesus came and, and saved everybody. But as I read through Scripture, I'm finding out that, that it's bigger than this. Jesus was very involved in creating everything we see. In fact, Scripture says he takes the primary role. Now, remember back in Genesis, the very first chapter where God says, let us make man in our image? Who's the us? Who's the us? Probably the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. We know God is a creator God, but there's Jesus right in the middle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved. But did they do different things? Did they have different levels of responsibility? I think they did. I think Jesus is given so much responsibility in what's been made in passages like this that he is the creator. There was a, a project my wife wanted to do. She wanted to make a chicken coop for our daughter-in-law because she wanted to raise chickens and have eggs and all that. So uh, my wife came to me and says, hey, um, I, I, told, I told our son that um, we we're going to build them a chicken coop. And I said, okay, explain what we means. <laughs> we are going to build a chicken coop. 
Because anything, anytime something's built around here, it ends up being me that's doing the building. So explain what we means. Well, she goes, well, I have the idea, and then I figured you'd, you know, do the, you know, drill and cutting and putting it all together. I said, okay, so I get it. So I'm building a chicken coop, and you're going to supervise me, right? <laughs> kind of. That was the project, you know. That's what, that's what we means. So every time my wife says, hey, um, let us... <laughs> do this project, I read between the lines. Some of you can identify with that. So here, God says, let us, and I'm thinking, well, Jesus goes, I know, I know, I'm, I'm going to be doing the bigger part of the work, because he is, he is called in Scripture the Word. Now, in Greek culture, when they tried to, they're big on philosophy, when they were asked, like, where did all this come from? Where did all this stuff that we see in the world come from? They said, well, this force called the Logos created it. This force, it's impersonal, it's out there, we don't know exactly what it is, but it made everything. They go, okay, that satisfies us. When John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes his gospel in a Greek culture, he takes that word and says, oh, I'll tell you what the word is. I'll tell you who the logos is. And so listen to this. This is the, when John writes his gospel, the very beginning of it will take you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And he's doing it intentionally to take you back in time to say, you know, Jesus, that you see here? I'm going to show you where all this began. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this Logos, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not a single thing. Everything in this world has Jesus' fingerprints on it. He made it all. Paul says he made everything visible and invisible. Every, did you know there's a whole invisible world around us where angels dwell, where, where heaven exists, where Hades awaits, where all these things are kind of in another realm, in another dimension, but we can't see here on earth? Jesus made all that too. He made all powers and authorities. He didn't make them, make them evil. He made them good, but some went rogue. He made it all. Everything, everything. Think about it. Jesus made it all. Have you ever made something and then watched how people reacted? Like uh, you made a dessert for a potluck or you made a, a dinner for your family and, or you had a piece of artwork that was, that was presented in a fair or, or someplace and you stood back just kind of listening, wondering how people liked what you made. Any of you ever do that? Just kind of like, I wonder if they like what I made. You know, you, you, you made a dessert and you're listening to the comments and you're hoping they like it because if they do, you can say, oh, I made that. And if they don't, you just kind of turn the other way. <laughs> you know, I wonder when Jesus walked this earth, if he just listened when people said, ah, look at those flowers, they're beautiful, that Jesus didn't go, ah, I know, I know. I, li I really like when I made that one. And they see an animal, you know, a little baby cow or lamb, and they go, oh, that's so adorable. Jesus goes, isn't it? Didn't I do a really good job with that? I did a really good job. I mean, think about this. Think of all the beautiful things around you, and do you ever acknowledge that Jesus made it? I mean, we were looking at the clouds last night and noticing these billowing clouds, and then as the sun was setting, kind of an orange glow around the edges of them, and it looked just spectacular. And I said, thank you, Jesus. I actually look in my house, was it right in this sermon? I looked across and there's this whole cabinet. There's, there's two, two doors with three shelves full of spices. 
just spices, salts, peppers, garlic, cumin, cardamom, cinnamon, chili pepper. I mean, dill, everything, all these spices. And I think, do you know what? I love spices. I love spicy food. I love flavors. And, and I said, Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you that we're just not eating bland food, you know, day after day. You, you did that. I mean, recognize the fact that he made it all. He made it. It should stir us to worship him. He didn't just hand it to us and say, I hope you have fun. He created it so we would draw our attention to him as the creator of it. And you know the best thing he made? This whole plant, the best thing he's made? People. People. Do you know what? That we are made in the icon of God, the, the image of God. We are, human beings are what God has made to represent him on this earth. That's why nothing else humanly created can represent God. Only people, because people are made by God in his image. God made us, and we exist because of him. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we are, all, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Through whom we exist. You are here on this planet because of Jesus. My wife and I are going through our house. We're painting walls. She's doing most of the painting. We are painting walls, changing curtains, replacing some furniture, and we're doing all that to make our house more enjoyable to us. And you know, when you look at this world, you look at all that's been made here, we might say, Jesus, thank you for making all this for me. But you know what it dawned on me? Jesus made this for him. It says we all, all this exists because of him. All this exists for him, not for us. And the danger is we can just thank God and then distance ourselves from Jesus. But Jesus made it so it would draw us back to him. It's all for him. It's all to display his glory, his power, his, his pleasure in us. Everything he made, he made so that it would draw us to him including us. Jesus made me. This is the whole point. Jesus made me. He made you for him. That's why you're here, for him. From the very beginning you were made, you were made for his pleasure, to come to know him, to walk with him, to love him, to serve him, to tell other people about him. And I just want to ask you, how well are you doing with that? How much pleasure are you bringing Jesus with your life? You and I were made for him. Paul goes on in, in Colossians and says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus controls it all. He not only made it all, he controls it all. It says he holds all things together. He made it, he sustains it. You know, at the very, at the very um, molecular level, everything is made up of tiny little things called atoms. And within an atom are these very powerful protons, neutrons, encased in, a, in, in electrons. And science has always wondered, like, there's, there's such power within those, um, those elements that there is something that keeps them from, like, spreading apart, repelling from each other. And they gave it a name, this force that holds them together. By the way, the force is so strong that if you can split the atom, if you can break that bond... You create nuclear power. It's very powerful. So reverse that. that. That power is holding them together, this incredible power. And it is called in science the strong nuclear force. It's the strongest power on the planet. 
It's called the strong nuclear force, and yet it's at the microscopic level. And get this, gravity is pretty powerful. Gravity is one of the most powerful forces because gravity is what keeps you on Earth while we're spinning, uh, spinning around day after day at 820 miles per hour. That's pretty fast. You are spinning right now 820-some miles per hour. Are you getting a little dizzy? Let me make you dizzier. Because not only are we spinning like this, but we're also spinning around the sun. We're rotating around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. Buckle up, gang. It makes me want to drink a bottle of Dramamine. I mean, it just sounds like, oh, my goodness. We are traveling 67,000 miles per hour. Yes. And you know why you don't feel it? Because of gravity. That's why we don't go flinging off the earth as it spins. You ever been on a um, merry-go-round? What happens when you spin? You go flying. You don't go flying off the earth. Why? Because this thing called gravity. Why doesn't why does earth go around the sun and go, woo? You know, it just goes off. There's, there's this force called gravity. Where did gravity come from? Maybe that's Jesus holding it all together. And get this, gravity's pretty strong. I'm not making this up. The strong nuclear force that holds atoms together is 6,000 trillion, trillion, trillion times stronger than the force of gravity. Wow! There is something incredibly, mind-bogglingly powerful holding atoms together. And, it's, and the Bible says, you know who's holding this all together? His name is Jesus. He made this earth, he made this world, he can hold it together. And I think that's so important to know because our own lives sometimes feel like they're just falling apart. They're crashing, the world's spinning out of control. I mean, think about the last year, all the stuff that's happened and how it's shaken our lives. I know people who are great business leaders, politicians, church leaders. I know some friends who are very sharp leaders who could tell you, you know, we're leading forward as a church and we're reaching new people and we're doing great things. And last year they said, I I don't know what to do. I've never faced anything like this before. I've never shut a church down before and tried to reopen it. I've never navigated this place before. I I don't have a handbook for how to do this. I don't know what to do. And uh, even people committed suicide in leadership roles because they just felt like I used to be in control. I'm not anymore. You see, it's so scary sometimes when we want to be in control and we don't have control. You know, sometimes control seems a little bit like an illusion. When I was a boy, my mom took my sisters and I to an amusement park, and we got to ride these little old steel cars, like old-fashioned cars. And I got in this car, my sisters were in front of me, and I'm racing behind them, I'm pushing on the gas, but I'm not making any progress to get up to them. In fact, I realized after a while that, hey, I'm turning the wheel to the left, but the car's going to the right. Then I'm realizing, you know what? I'm just going to sit here, and I'm moving just as fast in the direction of the track by doing nothing. In fact, I can't influence this thing at all. I'm just going through the motions. You know, some of us feel like that with life. It's called fatalism or determinism. You know, there's nothing you can do. Your life's been laid out for you, uh, whether it be from God or just from karma and nature. There's nothing you can do to change it. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's kind of the view that many have. But, but Scripture says Jesus is definitely in control. He's sovereign. It says in the first letter um, to Timothy that Paul writes, Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Sovereign means supreme. He's the supreme ruler. Makes sense. If he made it, he has a right to rule it. 
He has the right to determine what happens. But, but just because Jesus determines what happens and Jesus controls everything doesn't mean that he prescribes every movement on this planet. Because God has a prescribed will and a permissive will. A prescribed will is when God says, this is going to happen, and there's nothing you can do to alter it. It says in Proverbs 16:4, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, it's guaranteed to happen. The sun, for example, is going to go down tonight and it's going to rise in the morning. No government decision can change that. No weatherman can call it differently. It is going to happen. God has decreed it. When Jesus came the first time, Scripture said, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to be able to alter it. What he's going to do when he's here, you're not going to be able to change it. He's coming again. He's decreed that. He's decreed that believers will spend eternity in his presence and unbelievers away from his presence forever. Nothing you can do to stop that from happening. It is his decreed will. But within that is also God's permissive will. Because we see God's decreed will where Jesus was doing ministry and, and he was showing his control over nature. He could cause the winds to, to stop, the waves to calm down. He could, he could cast demons out and send them into the abyss. He could uh, remove disease. He could raise someone from the dead, saying death doesn't even have control. But the one area where Jesus allowed freedom was man's response to him, how man responded to his voice. He compels us to walk with him, but doesn't force us. Very much like a parent, God has a will, a desire that, that we do certain things, that we live in a certain way. But you know, even with your own kids, you can raise your kids and say, hey, it's my will that you finish school. They get good grades, that you always tell the truth, that you, um, they, they are a person of integrity, that when you drive, you put on your seatbelt, and you hang around good people. I mean, those are all things that parents would say, like, well, that's my will for you. And then what do our kids do? They sometimes violate our will. Why? Because we also have a will that they choose their life. God has a will that we do certain things. Scripture says that God wants all to be saved and to understand that, that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for them. He, he desires that all come to repentance, but all don't. He desires that believers live lives of sexual purity. He says, this is God's will, that you be sexually pure. Do we? Do we all? Not always. See, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, um, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Here we have Jesus to gather his people. That. You know, in the book of Hebrews, I think it's, it explains the situation pretty well. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Nothing. But at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Everything is under Jesus' control, but every individual thing on this planet, including you and me, are not necessarily under his control yet. God wills one thing, sometimes people will another. And bad decisions, eternal plan. I like how Aunt Randy Alcorn not always done, yet his will is never frustrated. Because God could even take your bad choices, your moral failures, your, your, um, your sins, your pain. And he can take all that, even though he didn't want that to happen. He says, I can take all that. 
I can take that and make it kind of a mosaic of your life and bring good out of it. So yes, there's things that you and I have done that have kind of messed up our lives. And Jesus said, well, that's, you, haven't, you haven't ruined your life. I can actually make that fit into my big plan as part of my redemptive purpose for you. That's why when you look at the world as crazy as it is, and you see terrorism and uh, natural disasters and government upheaval, that we don't have to say, say oh, the world's just out of control. Yeah, maybe the world is, but Jesus is still in control. He absolutely is still in control. He's not caught off guard by these things. But what, what he desires is that he be first. See, Paul says he's the head of the church. He's in front of the church. He's leading the church through this. That's why the church is going to endure through whatever times because Jesus is in front of it. And then he says this, that he might be preeminent in everything that in everything he might be preeminent. What does that mean? That in everything, Jesus would be first. Jesus would have the highest position. Think about your own life. Is he preeminent? Is he always in front of you? Is he always the head? Is he the one that you're following? You will always be at your best when Jesus is first. You'll always be at your best when Jesus is first. And that's the point here. My life functions best when Jesus is in charge. If your marriage is on the rocks, if your family life is chaotic, I'll tell you this, Jesus will hold it together if you put him in charge. Let him be Lord. Let him be king. Your finances are messy. Your emotions are all twisted up. Jesus can untangle things. He can straighten things out. He can make things beautiful. Let him be the leader. He can, he can, he can manage it. He can do well with it. All things turn out for the good of those who love him when they walk in faith. It's our job not to control it because you'll never have full control. Our job is to trust the one who does have control. Make sense? You can't control it all. Sometimes you look at your kids and go, I wish I could control them. I can't. I wish I could control my mate. I can't. Got to let it go. I wish I could control the people around me at work. I can't. I can't. But I can trust. I can trust. And that's what we must do. I must trust him. And then there's one other thing he says in this passage, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus restores it all. He is bringing it all back together. Everything that was damaged by sin, Jesus is fixing. You know, from the, the beginning, man was made, Adam and Eve were made, to walk with God and enjoy an abundance of provision. And so when they failed and God raised up Abraham and his family, he says, okay, let's try it again. I'm going to bring you into the promised land and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you abundance of provision. And then that failed. And then Jesus comes out and says, says I'm the good shepherd. My sheep come in and out and enjoy good pasture. You know, he's always wanting to get us to this place where would you walk with me because I want to bless you so much. I want to share my wealth with you, but you're just not getting it. And he wanting, he's wanting to restore it all. There's this beautiful story in the Old Testament of a, a lady named Naomi. Her husband dies, and then she um, loses both of her sons who, who pass away, and she's left with these, her two daughter-in-laws, and one of them is a gal named Ruth. And the whole book of the Bible um, talks about Ruth and her journey to find this man. It's a, a distant relative named Boaz, and they get married, and then they have a baby who ends up being the grandfather of King David. And this couple with this first baby, um, Naomi gets to hold that baby, and when Naomi, who's gone through a lot of heartache in her life, losing her husband, losing her two sons, gets to hold this baby, the women in her life come to her. And here's what the women says, say to her. 
Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Naomi, you thought you lost everything. God's restoring it. And this little grandchild you're holding is part of it. He's, he's filling in the holes in your life. He's not going to bring your husband back from the dead. He's not going to bring your sons back from the dead, but he's not finished with you yet. He has good things in store for you. God is a restorer. Next week, we're going to have a parking lot full of old cars. And there's some men who just love to tinker with these old cars and bring them back to kind of their original beauty. You know, the original paint colors and original uh, upholstery and original instrumentation and, and all these things that are trying to restore to bring back, you know, the original design and look of this vehicle. And so when God takes us and wants to restore us, what's he trying to restore us to be? Because I've never been perfect. So what is, he re- what is he going back? What is he restoring? Well, he's not restoring me to me. He's restoring me to the image like Adam and Eve from the very beginning. He's trying to restore us to what he designed us as humans to be, to have a relationship with God, uh, to have our souls renewed. In Psalm 23, 3, David said, he restores my soul. It begins there. It's our relationship with God then, then overflows to our relationships with others. God wants us to have what's called shalom, peace, peace at every turn, peace in every direction of our lives, peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters, peace with other people. God wants us to have this, and it's accomplished through Jesus when he went to the cross. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, he himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body and through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's, He's through the cross. We have a relationship with God restored. Sin isn't in the way anymore. It's been torn down. That wall between us and God obliterated through the cross. But you know what else has been obliterated? The wall that stood between me and other people. In this day, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. For us, it could be Democrats and Republicans. It could be, uh, it could be men and women. It could be, uh, you know, the rich and the poor. You know, it, it could be whosoever. Whatever issues come between you and other people can get demolished through the cross because we are all sinners in need of grace. And Jesus forgiveness extends to us so that we then can give it to others, that we can be restored in our relationships. God wants to restore our lives, starting with our relationships. You know, a man was talking to me this week, and he said, Pastor, he said, I've talked to a number of people who've had physical illnesses, and they didn't seem to get better. And when I probed into their lives and asked what was going on spiritually, I found a common theme with many of them. He said the common theme was that they had unforgiveness in their heart towards somebody, somebody that had hurt them, someone that offended them, and they couldn't let go or wouldn't let go of that thing. And he said he would talk to them and, and remind them that Jesus forgave their sins too and that they needed to let that go, that they needed to forgive their brother or sister. And when that person did it, guess what happened? They started to heal physically. Because our bodies and spirits are so intertwined, they affect each other. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're dealing with bitterness. Maybe you're dealing with unforgiveness in your heart. God says, hey, the cross dealt with that. Come on, get on with it. I gave you grace. Give that grace to someone else. God wants us to be restored in our relationships. You know, there's a beautiful um, passage in the Old Testament where the Israelites had wandered from God. They lost a lot of the blessings that God had given them. But God never gave up in what he wanted to give them. 
In the book of Joel, there's a passage. Um, I've never read it in service before, but I think it's so beautiful. It says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. All this abundance, God says, I'm going to give you all this abundance. And then he says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The things that you lost and thought you'd never get back, I'm going to replace. may not be the very same thing, but I'm going to restore your life. It's like when Job, you remember the story of Job? Job uh, was inflicted with an illness, he lost it, and he lost his family, lost his farm, lost his health. And his wife said, man, it's just time to curse God because you've gone through so much. And he says, no, I can't do that. At the end of Job's life, do you remember what happened? He was blessed twice as much as before. That God actually blessed him so much. It was like, wow, I thought I was blessed before. I'm blessed even more now. He's, he's restored the years the locust has eaten. That's what God's desire is to restore. I may not bring back what you had before, but I'll tell you this. I believe the best years of your life are still ahead of you. There's a a couple that visited our church last week. They used to attend here. They moved out of state, but they were back and joined us for church and then came to our house to to have lunch. And I remember this family very well because the husband uh, felt led by the Lord to reverse a surgery he had so that he could have children again. And shortly after the reversal of that surgery, um, his wife became pregnant. They were so excited. It was like, God has blessed us. He's answered these prayers. It all works. So um, she's going along in her pregnancy. In the fifth month, she learns the baby has died. And so I go to the hospital to see them. It's a very quiet room. And she's holding her baby on her chest. And she's named that little girl Katie. And look like little baby, little arms, face, everything. And they were devastated. It was hard. And, and some of you have been through situations like very hard. Fast forward. They're at our house, and then around the table were two girls born after that. One just graduated from high school, another one's in middle school. And God has blessed them. And they would say that without a doubt. God has blessed them. Have they gone through pain? Yes. Have they suffered losses? Absolutely. But God has given them wonderful blessings. I'm saying that because some of you have gone through, you know, maybe your marriage didn't work out. And maybe you suffered a loss of a loved one in your life. And you think, man, those were the good old days. But, but I don't have anything good in front of me because I'm so brokenhearted over the past. Maybe you had a moral failure. Maybe you really made some bad decisions in your life, and that's all behind you. And you think, ah, I just screwed up so bad that God will never bless my life. But I'm telling you, he's a God who wants to bless you. He wants to restore the years the locust has eaten in your life. Your best years are in front of you. And here's the point. Jesus will give me what's been missing. The things that you really need in your life. He says, I'm going to give that to you. Walk with me. Watch. Watch what I do. Because I'm that kind of a God. You know, we're going to experience this, this final restoration in heaven one day. Someday we'll get new bodies, and someday we'll have all this kind of restored in heaven. But even here on earth, we, we can experience a taste of what that's like, of what it's all leading to. That's why we keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He made you. It was no mistake. 
No accident that you're here. He made you and he made you for him. He holds all things together. You're not a hopeless mess. Even though you may have screwed up, he hasn't. And so don't worry about the past. Seek first his kingship. Let him be preeminent in your life. Let him be the one who controls your future. And then watch as he restores all things in your life. Watch as he pours out his love and abundance into your life. He is not holding the good from you. He's just wanting you to come to him. And so in these early days of summer, as we go through this, I I hope you have this huge image of who Jesus is, what he's wanting to do in your life. And this is probably as good a day as any just to say, I want to surrender to him again. I've strayed. I've neglected Jesus. I've not talked to him for a while. I just need to give my life back to him again. Maybe kind of a renewal of commitment. Or maybe there's someone here today that you've never given your life to Jesus. This Jesus we've been talking about. He made you for him. He's waiting for you. And he wants you to come to repentance and faith. And so I'm going to ask you to stand and ask if our prayer partners would come and be available up front. Because I'm just going to go ahead and say a prayer over us. If you just need this moment of time before you leave here to say, Jesus, I'm back. Or Jesus, man, take this mess. Or Jesus, I just want to give you control of my life again. Or Jesus, I need to surrender and put you as the king of my life. I want to give you that opportunity to do that today. So Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you made us for you. That every person in this room was made to have a relationship with you. You didn't forget any of us when you went to the cross, but you were thinking of us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would always be mindful of you, that we'd see the beauty around us and think of Jesus. We would see the things in our lives, the challenges, the tragedies in our lives, and be reminded that you are still in control, that this is your world and you're not going to let it go off its hinges, that you hold the, the, the whole solar system together, you hold the earth together, you hold the atoms together, surely you can hold my life together. And so we, we put our faith in you, Jesus. We lift our eyes to you. You are the true sovereign king. We live in awe and worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, if you need prayer again, we're up here to pray with you. Don't leave this place without a firm grip on Jesus' hand.